Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Let's read together from verse 7 to verse 12. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan, and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. For he healed many, so that as many as had afflictions pressed about him to touch him. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out, saying, You are the Son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us today, even as we've read earlier about the parable of the sower. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear your word, hear your word and accept it, and that by accepting it and sweetly complying with it and with the work of your spirit in our hearts, Lord, that we would be fruitful upon our hearing of your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would grant us richly of your spirit. Prepare our ears, prepare our hearts, prepare the eyes of our faith that we may see and hear and behold the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, when the sun comes out during a winter day in Squamish, how do you respond Maybe you haven't had the experience in quite a while, so maybe you're still trying to think through your memories. But how do you respond when the sun begins to break through the clouds and squamish? And the beautiful landscape that we now see under loads of snow and dense fog and clouds becomes bright and brilliant, and you can see even the warmth outside. It's almost as if the city comes alive when the sun comes out. Or we could put it this way, the coming of the sun brings new life to our city. Well, something similar can be said about a different sun, about the S-O-N, the Son of God. For as He came down to His own creation, He came down to bring new life. And we're beginning to see in Mark's gospel different responses to that son who came to bring light into a dark and fallen world, to bring life into a world of death. And so let's continue to look at the Son of God and the various responses to him as we work our way through the text before us. And by the end of this passage, you and I should be able to identify with how we've responded to the Son of God. But more importantly, 
we should also be able to identify what our response must be if we desire life. Well, once again, we see there in verse 7 that Jesus has withdrawn. We've seen Jesus withdraw already in Mark's gospel to a desolate place to pray after the multitudes first started coming to him. But now we see Jesus withdrawing again here in verse 7 for a different reason. And to refresh your memories on the reason, we can look back simply one verse and look at verse 6. We see that after Jesus declared who he was as the Lord of the Sabbath, as the Son of Man, as the one who has dominion over all things, as the one who even had authority to rightly interpret and divide the word of truth or the word of God, and cast aside all human traditions and man-made commandments. We see that the Pharisees and the Herodians, two enemies, are now united together against a common enemy, against the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are seeking to destroy him. And so that's one of the first responses we see here in Mark chapter 3. It's the response to Jesus that is a response out of absolute hatred. It is a response of destruction. And so we see Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to the sea. Of course, Mark's going to record for us 11 times total that Jesus is going to withdraw in some way, shape, or form. Either to pray or, as we see here, to protect himself and others from those who are plotting his destruction. And so Jesus withdraws to the sea as a tactical move, no doubt. But this tactical move is also a highly symbolic move. In fact, if you understand something of the symbolism of the sea, then you can understand how symbolic this move really is. Listen to what Daniel chapter 7 says about the sea. And this captures, in a nutshell, what the Jewish mind would have thought of when they heard the sea. Daniel 7, verses 2 and 3. Daniel declared, In my vision in the night I looked, and suddenly the four winds of heaven were churning up the great sea. Then four great beasts came up out of the sea, each one different from the others. Well, as Daniel goes on to unpack the vision and even give an interpretation of it, we see that these four beasts are four Gentile kings and kingdoms. They were symbolic, or at least the sea was symbolic of the Gentiles. And of course, Israel was always referred to as the land of Israel. Even today, it's called the Holy Land. This close identification with the land and the Jewish people. But the sea having that same kind of identification with the Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, not Israel. And so when Jesus here is withdrawing to the sea, we're also beginning to see something forecasted 
in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In fact, think about it. Jesus, we've just been told, is being sought out by the Jewish Pharisees. Probably more Jewish than anyone in this time period. Seeking to uphold with great zeal all of the Jewish laws and customs. They're seeking to destroy Jesus. And this would be indicative of really of the entire spirit of Jesus' people, the Jews, when he came to them. The Apostle John summarizes Jesus' life and ministry to his own people as he came to his own and they received him not. Jesus came to his own and they rejected him. Because of that rejection, we see the blessings of God going out to the sea, going out to the Gentiles. And of course, we see then that the geography that's listed for us next, as we see that a great multitude is coming together to follow Jesus, at least to learn about him, we see that there's a great multitude following him from Galilee. That's the region that he's been ministering, largely a Jewish territory. Then we also see this expanded from Galilee. We have from Judea. This is the, the, the larger Jewish region. Jerusalem, that holy city of Judea. So we've seen three predominantly Jewish territories here. But then we begin to see, after this listing of these three places, we see the waning of a Jewish population. And we see the waxing of Gentile populations as we see Idumea being recorded for us here. This is further south. Idumea would have been known as the land of Edom. Edom, of course, being another name for Esau. Remember Esau? That was Jacob's or Israel's other brother. The one who had the birthright and the blessing stolen from him. And so Idumea being mentioned here, and beyond the Jordan, that would be out east of the Jordan River. A mixed territory of, yes, some Jews, but largely Gentile lands. And then, of course, we have Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon being those coastal towns there on the Mediterranean Sea to the northwest of Galilee. In this region, although there might have been a few Jews there scattered about, this region was largely known for being Gentile. In fact, in the mindset of the Jews, this was pagan land, Gentile territory. picture that emerges then as we see in these first couple of verses that Jesus withdrew to the sea not only as a tactical move to preserve his life and the life of his disciples, but to withdraw even from those hostile Jews that were pursuing his destruction. And then we see the peoples that are beginning to take interest in Jesus Christ and it's waning from the Jewish populations and waxing Gentile. Of course, as these 
great multitudes are coming to Jesus, we see the next response to Jesus. If we've seen destruction on the part of the Pharisees and the Herodians, we are now seeing a response of desperation from these great multitudes. So much so that Jesus tells his disciples there in verse 9 to ready a boat. And of course, the reason for having this boat being readied is so that the multitude would not crush him. I hope you can begin to put it together in your mind how big these multitudes are and how desperate these multitudes are. So much so that Jesus has to plan an escape route. He has to plan to prevent himself from being crushed by this multitude pressing in against him to touch him. We'll speak more about this in just a moment, but at this point, I just want to point out this little detail of a boat or a small boat as it's spoken of there in verse 9. This isn't the only time that Mark talks about a boat in his gospel. In fact, we see here emerging a boat theme, we could call it. That in the next couple of chapters, Mark is going to record for us six boat voyages. Jesus is going to use this boat that's been readied for him. In fact, even as we read about in our New Testament reading this morning, Jesus used that boat as a pulpit to preach to the crowds from the shoreline. So why does Mark continue to take care to include this little detail about a little boat? Well, it's interesting when we think about it and we think about the disciples that Jesus has called so far. We've been given the stories of five of the twelve disciples that Jesus has called. And we're not going to get any more of their stories in Mark's gospel. We're just going to have them simply listed for us in the next passage. But four out of the five that we've heard so far, we've learned that those four disciples were called from being fishermen to being disciples of Jesus Christ, to following him. And so whether it's one of the boats of these fishermen, or whether it's because of their connections to the fishing industry that Jesus is able to have his disciples ready a boat, we don't know. We're not told for sure. But what we do know is that the boat will prove to be a useful means, a useful means to preserve the life of Jesus Christ, a useful means of transport for Jesus and his disciples as he continues to minister to the needy. And it's one of those subtle reminders in Mark's gospel, a subtle reminder that we cannot get carried away with all of the healings and the exorcisms that we're seeing. But it's a subtle reminder that God is constantly at work, even in And through small, ordinary means of little boats and other seemingly insignificant details of life. Jesus intentionally called fishermen to be his disciples. He knew what he would need throughout his ministry. 
He thought through every single little detail, even the practical ones. We need to always keep that in mind as Christians. Sometimes we think that God doesn't care about any of the, the mundane, physical details of our lives. Or as if He doesn't think about them, or perhaps He's overlooked them. But He doesn't. <coughs> Jesus' disciples were able to ready a boat. A small little boat. A seemingly insignificant thing, a thing that would prove to be a means by which Jesus' own life was kept from being crushed before the proper time. One more thing I want to point out here in verse 9 is the way that Jesus tells his disciples to ready a boat. He told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him. In case you missed it, should is a command word. Uh, It's something that, it's not optional. When you tell somebody that they should do something, that's imposing an obligation. That's giving a rule or a command. And I like to take time to point these kinds of things out because one of the most popular mantras in our day and age, especially when it comes to Christianity is that Christianity is not about rules, but it's about a relationship. And that's a warm, fuzzy kind of phrase that, we, that may sound somewhat right at first. Of course it's about a relationship. Of course it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. No one can deny that. The problem is, is when we make enemies out of friends. When we pit rules and relationships against one another, as if the two are completely incompatible. Jesus, when he tells his disciples that they should ready a boat, he's showing us the fundamental relationship of a master and his disciples. That it is a relationship maintained and sustained by rules. In fact, we can think about any relationship in life. That no relationship in life can be maintained or sustained without rules. The first human-to-human commandment that we have from the God of Christianity is a God about children honoring your parents. That's a rule To protect and preserve a sacred relationship between you and your parents. Relationships are governed by rules. For their good. It's no different between Jesus and his followers. It's no different between Christ and Christians. Christianity is a relationship based on rules. Based on the rule of Christ for our good. And so Jesus tells his disciples that they should ready a boat for him, that he will not be crushed. And so it's for good reason that Jesus gives rules. It's a rule that will prove to be useful to him and his ministry, and a rule that even serves in preserving his own life.
Well, verse 10, we continue to see that response of desperation from the multitudes and the crowds that are coming to Jesus. In fact, we see that the many are coming to him, pressing about him in order to touch him. And so Jesus saying that he could be crushed is, is, a, is a legitimate thing. He's not speaking hyperbolically here. He's noting to us that the crowds are so desperate to touch him that he could be crushed. Someone could be crushed in a stampede of people. Why did Jesus need to be touched? Well, as the Gospels continuously relate to us, people were being healed if they could just come and touch Jesus. If they could seek him and even touch the fringe of his garment, they could be healed of lifelong chronic illnesses. If they could just get Jesus to touch their infirm son or daughter lying on their sickbed, Jesus could heal them. And so you see the hope that was beginning to catch like wildfire and fuel this desperation to press into Jesus. I think as a parent, you can understand this kind of desperation if you had a sick child. I'm reminded of an article that was recently released in August about a 25-year-old. Her name is J.C., she was diagnosed with a rare form of ALS. Her and her twin sister. Her twin sister had already died from ALS. But JC, the surviving twin, was still alive and her parents were still hopeful that a remedy could be found. In fact, there was a new personalized drug that was found and although it hadn't produced the results as of yet that the parents were hoping. Listen to what the mom said about even just hearing that this kind of drug was out there. Lori, JC's mom, said that hearing there was this new personalized drug that could bring hope, we felt reborn and like we were getting a second chance. To hear that there was hope with ALS, we literally felt alive again. We believed in it and haven't looked back. Jesus offered this kind of hope to the first century world. A world where not only rare forms of ALS were taking people's lives, but even common sicknesses, things that we can just pop a few antibiotics for today, would claim the lives of men. And so Jesus offered hope to the world around him like never seen before and never seen since. There was a certainty to his healing that far surpassed even the best of modern medicine today. And so it's easy to understand why the multitudes came pressing in on him with such intensity and such desperation in hopes of touching him. But these hopefuls weren't the only ones. 
responding to Jesus. We also see there in verses 11 and 12 another group being introduced to us. And we see here the unclean spirits respond to Jesus. Now if the Pharisees were bent on destroying Jesus and the crowds were desperate for Jesus, I think it's here that we can safely say that the unclean spirits are responding to Jesus in order to discredit him. In fact, this is the third time that we're going to see people possessed with unclean spirits, or we could say people under the oppression of of demons, calling out and identifying an aspect of Jesus Christ. We saw at first that they just knew who he was, that he was Jesus of Nazareth. And then we saw them saying that he was the Holy One of God. And now we see them saying that he is the Son of God. That whenever they would see him, they would fall down and cry out. This is the Son of God. What do we make of this? Why would I say that this is an effort or an attempt to discredit Jesus? Well, I say that because if you were to remember what we read last week from Mark's Gospel or just simply look ahead a little bit to Jesus' words towards the end of chapter 3, you would see that Jesus has to defend himself from doing the work of Satan, that he is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub or by the power of Satan. That was a widespread charge against Jesus Christ. And it was likely because the demons themselves were accurately and rightly identifying who Jesus was. And his ministry had become so intertwined with their activity. And so the spirits, these unclean spirits that have taken up, in res- and taken up residence in human bodies are using human voices to cry out who Jesus is in order to discredit him and his ministry. Once again, we see that Jesus has complete authority over these unclean spirits, even as he has authority over the afflictions and the illnesses that he's been healing. In fact, they fall down before him whenever they see him. And the way this is written, this seems to be some sort of continuous action that whenever they would see him, they had to hit their knees and prostrate themselves before him, an act of bowing or submission. And of course, we also see that he sternly warned them that they should not make him known to cut their ties with his ministry, that it was not their prerogative to manifest him, but his own and his disciples. The thing that we need to recognize here is that Jesus has the authority to make this charge against them, to charge them or to sternly warn them. The idea there is that this is under the threat of punishment, that he's warning them. And we need to remember that Jesus will make good on this charge. 
He will make good on this charge when we get a glimpse of that fate of all those who have spurned the authority of Jesus Christ, who try to discredit him or dismiss him. When we read about the eternal fate of those unclean spirits, even their prince, Satan himself, and all human beings like that, who would not humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, those who would not lovingly come to profess Jesus and seek to profess him for his glory rather than to discredit him. When we see a glimpse of their fate, we know that it is not a pretty one. But it is the lake of fire. It is the place of eternal torment and destruction. And so even in this stern warning, this charge under the possibility of threat that Jesus has the authority to do such a thing. As in the final judgment, all authority will be given to the Son of God. The Father will give him all things, even that authority to cast these unclean spirits into the pit forever. And so Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, continue to outline for us the various responses to Jesus. The response of destruction, which prompts Jesus' withdrawal to the sea. The desperation of the crowds and the discrediting of the unclean spirits. A few concluding thoughts then as we have these responses before us. And the first one is, I want to point out Jesus' response. In all of these responses to him, we see something of a counter-response of Jesus Christ. And the response that we continue to see is that he is responding in such a way to preserve his own life and the life of others. Now we oftentimes don't think of Jesus Christ in this way. We oftentimes only think of Jesus Christ as the sacrificial lamb. As the one who came and died and who laid down his life. And of course all of that's true. But we also need to remember that Jesus came to be the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Because he came to be the unblemished lamb. That lamb without any spot, any stain, any blemish of sin. And for that to be the case, Jesus had to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus couldn't have violated a single one of God's commands. We upheld that integrity of Jesus when we looked at the fourth commandment earlier in Mark chapter 3. But it's here in a more subtle way that we need to be able to see that Jesus even fulfilled all righteousness in the sixth commandment. That sixth commandment of thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not murder. And of course, that didn't mean that Jesus just didn't have to murder anybody during his lifetime to be righteous according to that commandment. But he also had to fulfill the positive requirements of that commandment as well. Listen to what the Shorter Catechism says about the Sixth Commandment and its requirements. Question 68. What is required in the Sixth Commandment? Answer. The Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life, 
and the life of others. Jesus withdrew to the sea. Jesus had a boat readied. And Jesus charged the spirits with silence to not make him known, to not stir up hatred towards him, to not discredit his ministry, to not end his life prematurely. All of Jesus' responses in this passage were for the preservation of his own life and the life of his disciples. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness in his responses. But we also need to see here something more about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ responded by preserving his life here so that he wouldn't be crushed before his time. In fact, that's what we read there in verse 9. That he wouldn't allow himself to be crushed by the multitudes that were pressing against him. And the reason for that is because Jesus didn't come to be crushed by the affirm, by the infirm and the afflicted. Jesus didn't come to be crushed by people simply because of their infirmities needing to be healed. Prophet Isaiah tells us why Jesus came and who would crush him. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus would not be crushed by the will of the people, but only by the will of the Lord. And Isaiah also tells us then why he was crushed and why it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And that is because he was crushed for our iniquities. Not merely for the infirmities of people, but for the iniquities, for the sins of the world. And so Jesus preserved his life in these moments because he knew his life was a precious life. It would be his life that would eventually be laid down to deal with your sins and with mine. That he would lay down his life of his own accord for his own sheep. And so Jesus preserved his life in these moments so that Jesus could go on to die on his terms so that you and I could live. We also see here then that the deepest need that any person has is not merely for their body to be healed. In fact, if you were to read about Capernaum, if you were to read about the region where Jesus has been ministering, in fact, the region that Jesus is likely still at, here as he withdraws to the sea. It's likely he's withdrawing from Capernaum. And if you were to read from Matthew chapter 11 about Capernaum, this is what you would hear. And you, Capernaum, 
who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Jesus is speaking of a, of a place that he healed many people. But we have to see here that the healings were not the ends in themselves. The healings were there as means to identify the ultimate healer. Not one who would just heal the body, but one who also had power to heal the soul. The healings in Capernaum should have led to repentance, turning to Jesus, forsaking their sin, rather than merely looking for healing in order to remain in their sin. What does it profit a man to have a body made whole if that body is only used as an instrument of unrighteousness and sin? But on the flip side, Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The idea being that we must think about and consider our souls. Jesus doesn't come merely to satisfy the desperate needs of our bodies. He comes to satisfy the desperate need that you and I, each one of us have for our souls. Souls that need to be made whole just as much, if not more, than an infirm body. A soul that is stained with Adam's sin. A soul that is further soiled by our own sins that we add each and every day. Capernaum should have been just as interested in their souls as they were their bodies. And so the message today for us is simple as we close. The message is simply this. Our response to Jesus needs to be one of faith. In which we turn from our sins and we turn to him our greatest good. And we turn to him not merely for earthly benefits. Not merely for our best life now. Not merely for temporary benefits. That's not why we come to Jesus in faith. That's not why we press into him with desperation. But we need to turn to him for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to turn to him so that he can restore our souls. Just like he restored the many bodies that day. In Mark chapter 3. Like some of you, I recently looked at my 2019 stats in the activity and fitness tracker, the Strava, as many of you have. And thinking about those stats, all those kilometers, all those hours that were logged, I sit back and wonder if I cared for my soul the same way that I cared for my body. 
I sit back and I wonder if I exercised my soul or exercised my spirit in God's word and in prayer as often as I exercised my body. I wonder if my prayers ascended to the throne of grace as often as I ascended the chief. Perhaps many of you need to think through that same thing. For this year and for every year after, you and I need to make our spiritual health a top priority. Bodily health, bodily healing, good things. Good things that the Lord does not overlook. But you can never give these things in exchange for your soul. You can never be so healthy in body that your spiritual health doesn't matter. Your soul is precious. Jesus laid down his life to redeem us both body and soul. And to make us whole in both. So you and I need to live today in light of this reality. We need to live each day in light of this reality. And when we do, we will have nothing to fear when we fall into the hands of the living God for judgment. If we fall into his hands now by faith, faith in the Son of God to make us whole, both body and soul, that is the only response that we can have to Jesus Christ if we want to live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have sent your Son. And in sending your Son, you sent the light of life. We pray that we would respond to him by laying hold of him, embracing him by faith, as our only hope to be made whole in both body and soul. And Lord, help us to live each day in light of our Savior who places so much importance upon our whole being. Let us not be so nearsighted to overlook our spiritual health and only attend to the health that we can see and measure by an annual doctor's appointment or by our fitness trackers. Lord, you know where our spiritual fitness is at. You know where we are weak. You know how to best strengthen us. And so we pray that you'd be pleased to strengthen us by your Spirit. Grant us wisdom in how to exercise our souls and be healthy spiritually, even as we would place a great value on bodily health. And so Lord, recalibrate us, refine us, sanctify us in this particular way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.